I'm Mitch Owens, Decorative Arts Editor of AD, and welcome to the AD Aesthete. From gimp to braid to silk double-looped diamond fringe, artful hand-woven trimmings have enriched interiors for centuries and often devouring a significant percentage of a decorating budget. In 1783, the fifth Duke of Devonshire spent the equivalent of $200,000 on trimmings when he decided to refurbish his private rooms. With the rise of modernism in the 1920s, though, trimmings were dubbed inconsequential frivolities, though they came in and went out of fashion as time went by. Could a revival be underway now? Possibly, if Annabelle Westman, the executive director of the Addingham Trust for the Study of Historic Houses and Collections, has any sway. Her new book, Fringe, Frog, and Tassel, The Art of the Trimmings Maker in Interior Decoration, just out from Philip Wilson Publishers, traces the history of trimmings in Britain and Ireland from the early Middle Ages up to contemporary times, and with eye-popping surprises on every page. I hope you enjoy the show. Annabelle, could you explain the title? Fringe, Frog, and Tassel for people who don't understand it. I didn't until I read the book. (laughs) Well, it was an inspiration, I should say. I think it was an inspiration in the middle of the night. Um, I went through various titles, um, such as The Finishing Touch, but I thought that was a bit sort of obvious. And then this this quote came to me. It's a quote of um, 1747 from a book, a wonderful book called The London Tradesman by Robert Campbell. And in it, uh, a whole chapter is is devoted to the laceman, which was the original name for the trimmings maker, a a term that actually goes on to the late 19th century. And um, he had 11 dependents, the, the laceman, and one of them was the fringe frog and tassel maker, which uh, is obviously where the title came from. And I quote uh, it fr- in my book, actually, the first page, because I think it's it's such a wonderful term. And if I may, I'd like to read, I, I give a quote um, for the fringe frog and tassel maker. Um, and because it's just so wonderful. It says, likewise employed by the lacemen, some of the button makers perform the work, but it is chiefly done by women upon the hand who make a very handsome livelihood of it if they are not initiated into the mystery of gin drinking, which I think is wonderful. And you immediately think of that Hogarth uh, print, of course, of the gin, uh, the gin lane. Exactly, with everyone sprawled here yeah, and there. Yeah, not a very nice print, I have to say. But So it was it was women who were in this craft, but they weren't, part of a guild they weren't no they weren't I mean um, women I mean we're talking here of a quote of 1747 right. and the women would basically be doing the things that worked by hand so you know tassels and fringe they're still made by hand and they were then but it was a man's trade in the terms of making braids in terms of of, of really putting the things together and that was the laceman the laceman was the the overarching what do I say, the overarching manager, really, of mm. all these other types of trimmings you can have, like the button maker and the livery lace maker. Right. And the fringe frog and tassel maker was just just, just the women. And did lace actually mean lace as we think of it in, in modern terms, or was it more of a generalized term for well, finely the, woven ornaments? <laughs> this could be extremely confusing, because lace, we think of the wonderful ruffs and the lovely lace that are made, and that was actually also a dependent. The lace maker was a was a, was an, a dependent of the 
lacemen. But lace in the right up to the end of the 19th century could also mean what we refer to as braid. Mm. So it can be really complicated. Um, and if you read lace in a, an upholsterer's account, he's not talking about frilly lace. He is talking about braid. And so that that can be you know quite complicated, really. Now, um, trimmings in their various forms have always been with us. Um, archaeological excavations Egyptian, have yeah. found them in Egypt and elsewhere. Yeah. But you started your book, which is focused on, on Britain and Ireland, in 1320. Yes. Was there a reason for 1320? What was going on then that was having a significant effect on, on fringe frogs and tassels? <laughs> well, 1320 must be, it sounds a strange date, but it was the earliest mention I could find of the silk woman. The silk woman was the original trimmings maker. Uh, she, in fact, the trade was really only done by women um, until the 1550s when men realized there was some money to be made in this and began to take it's over. always the case, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but no, that, so, that, so 1320 was this first and she was called Marjorie the Silk Woman. And I thought, well, why not? Let's start here. Obviously, trimmings were made before, but there's so few records that have survived from this period, and we can really only look at manuscript paintings. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's a rather arbitrary date, but it, that's, that's why I started there. But I did think it was important to start early, just to show that it didn't just start, say, in the late 17th century when it really becomes wonderful, um, when it's a great, great period for trimmings. And I go right to the 1970s, mm-hmm. simply because I felt this is, a, this is a niche subject, and I really need to give a really broad aspect to it, a broad, broad coverage. Um, and 1970 was the date that, um, well, the 70s was when John Fowler died. He was a great interior decorator, the Prince of Decorators, as mm. Debo, Duchess of Devonshire called him. And he was a great advocate of trimmings. So when he died, I just thought it was a way to mm. finish. So in terms of trimmings in the in the Middle Ages, are we looking at trimmings being made as mere ornament or are they being made to cover up rough edges? Are they, <laughs> I mean, what is, what's, what's um, I guess, the genesis for them? I mean, the primary use... Well, for decoration, I think, but also to cover rough edges. I think that until really the 18th century, upholstery was pretty rough. It was mm. pretty um, mediocre. Well, not mediocre. I mean, they made wonderful things, but there were lots of rough edges. And trimmings was an ideal way of covering you know, the raw edges. But in the Middle Ages, again, it covered a raw edge. It finished an edge, really. Mm. And um, a very popular type of trimming uh, 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 fringe, they, they love their fringes, and braids, you don't really get many braids in. It's, it's really fringe and tassels, but fringe in particular. And it would just be a simple cut fringe. And what you see over and over again in ecclesiastical uh, images, but also in you know, domestic or royal images, I mean, trimmings were always expensive, is the type of fringe which we would call a block fringe today, which is blocks of colour, usually alternating. So, you know, red, crimson, red, crimson mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in varying widths. And, you know, you look at as I said, look at these manuscript paintings. And but not like it. a long fringe, the block fringe. It's sort of like clipped grass in a way. Or um, is it really sort of hanging down as well? Oh, it's hanging down. Oh, it's right. hanging down. No, it can be quite long. I mean, it can be six inches long mm. uh, or it could be half an inch. You know, well, I mean, that's one of the things you see. The, the book is so full of historical images, paintings um, that really illustrate the sort of copious use of trimmings in the in its broadest sense from rosettes on shoes to frogging on a table to the lace ruff to and and it's like if you remove 
all of those elements, what one could consider secondary or tertiary elements, it all sort of falls flat. Well, it would. It, it provides a decoration, and, and, and as you say, it completely falls flat, and it would be very sort of rather, no, I can't say it's dull, because obviously the painter's technique, but the addition of trimmings, particularly in early portraits, they really, really are important. On the dress, dress was always very important for trimmings. Uh, this book concentrates on furnishing. Mm. Um, and you mentioned frogging, and of course that's a word that um, uh, it's, it's, I mean, you can think of a duffel coat today, and it's the sort of buttons and loops that go around a duffel coat. Right. But they were used for the corners of tablecloths in the 16th and 17th century when the tablecloth came down to the floor, or you'd find them on a bed valance or pelmet mm -hmm. where they joined at the corners and that would be buttons and loops. They could be incredibly intricate. I mean, really, really intricate. In fact, they were also very, very expensive. I can just give you a quote of um, Catherine of Braganza, who was the wife of Charles II, and she had uh, buttons and loops or this very intricate um, trimming uh, around her bed valance. And for seven and a half yards, it cost the equivalent of £65,000, which would be, what, $80,000 $80, today? $80,000, something like that. Uh, just for seven just and a half Just for the tablecloth. Well, no, this was for, for, the, the for, the, for, the, for, the, for the intricate trimming, which included the buttons and loops, right. on the corners of her bed valance. Bed valances on four-post beds, obviously, were the most, where you'd find your most expensive trimming. So, so trimmings were, even though they've always been with us, they've always been, to a degree, a status symbol, because you know exactly... Mm -hmm the work that goes into it, therefore you know somebody had to be able to afford that. Exactly. So you, they were they were status symbols. Trimmings were status symbols. I mean, it is a luxury trade. And not just because some of them were made of gold thread or silver thread, but truly the workmanship. It's the workmanship, but actually it was in the, it was in the thread as well. I mean, if you had gold thread in, it could up the cost by 50%, depending on how much gold you had, of course. But gold and silk were expensive. But for the People who are not quite so wealthy, you could do equivalent in wool, but obviously you wouldn't go to the same amount of trouble. The expense was really in the th in the in the materials that mm. were used. The poor lacemen didn't get very much money at all, and in fact, actually, to that go must have been a surprise for those men who took over. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I may just quote again from this wonderful uh, London tradesman of, of the Laceman, it's it's a wonderful quote. You know, he, he 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 must speak fluently, though not elegantly. He must entertain the ladies, you know, encourage them to buy these trimmings. Um, but he must not be seized with a palpitation of the heart or the touch of a delicate hand. But the most important thing with regard to your question, he says, a young man may commence Laceman if he trust moderately and with discretion, live with economy and minds his business more than his mistress, he may live to increase his stock. But otherwise, I know no readier road to jail and destruction than the lace man's business. He operated on a very, very low margin. There was no, there was money to be made in it, but for, for the few, mm. really. Yeah. I mean, I know in, in looking through the, the, the book at the, the intricacy of that, so to realize that they were working on such a narrow margin, mm. it's almost what's, is it really worth it to, 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 to do this? I mean, the, it seems like a, a business full of far too many challenges beyond that of making a beautiful braid. I totally agree, but there were a lot of people in the trade. I mean, it, it didn't discourage people, mm -hmm. but, you know, you just had to be very careful in, mind, in your business and dealings. Where was the centre point of trimmings making in London? I presume that's the, the, the centrepiece of, of uh, 
uh, trimmings making in in Britain. In England, yes, it certainly was until the 19th century when it began to diversify and go to you know the northern towns, Birmingham and Macclesfield and and other areas. But um, it was London and is the mainstay right up to that period. And the most successful were in the west side of London. They concentrated in the same areas of the upholsterer, the successful upholsterer and the cabinet maker. I mean, the obvious person is Thomas Chippendale. Mm. Uh, Thomas Chippendale had his workshop in St. Martin's Lane, which is around Covent Garden and the Strand mm. and um, Long Acre. And that's where the trimmings makers, the successful ones, were based as well. So they could be close enough to the upholsterers Made sense. To, sh- to show their work Made and sense. to... Um, Go out and order. Well, because these were usually ordered to, because they were expensive, they were ordered to, they were specially ordered. They were bespoke trimmings, so a mm. trimmings maker would go along on the expensive ones and say, you know, I want so much. So unlike you. today, there would not have been, say, available yardage of like a standard. Unless they were very cheap. Okay. Unless they were very cheap, because you always bordered your edges with a bit of braid. But unless they were very cheap, you would you would order them specially. Mm. And that all came along when, you know, the department store and the, you know, the big furnishing firm started. And that's when you begin to find the lacemen being absorbed into the furnishing businesses. And you lose track of the individual lacemen mm. that, that um, was rather important. I remember talking once with Nina Campbell, the, the British decorator who we, we both know, and talking about her early days at Colfax and Fowler mm-hmm. and being sent out with, um, if I'm not mistaking it, um, Nina, you can call me and, and correct me, going off to uh, the trimmings maker and telling him what John Fowler wanted mm. him to weave and the specific colors. And she made it sound like suddenly a window had been opened into a medieval world of this, this man who could make things, narrow, narrow, pretty <laughs> things of silk and... Exactly, yes. Well, if you go into, if you used to go into a, a trimming shop, I mean, look, what you say medieval, it was almost Dickensian, these, mm. these, these looms, these ancient looms churning out these wonderful silk or maybe gold thread trimmings. Um, John Fowler, of course, was, a, maybe I've mentioned already, was a great um, advocate of trimmings. And he used a And brought them back into some style. Absolutely. Because of the revival yeah. of his interest in 18th century decoration. Absolutely. Looked at 18th century decoration and he was uh, had, 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 had the availability. I mean, when you went to country houses, he found them in stores or he found them. And he either used old trimmings or he would have them made, would give possibly the... Um, he used a particular company called B.A. Clark, who's now no longer with us. But uh, he, he used this company and said, look, this is what I want to make, mm. and, and they would make it for him. And beautiful ones, beautiful ones. Well, the thing that astounds me, too, is your your book makes it incredibly clear how the vocabulary of trimmings mm. is an extravagant one. I mean, we're not just simply talking... A, a, a braid that hides n- nails on a chair. Um, there's that wonderful, wonderful state bed at Cotille in Cornwall oh, yes. with the finials on the top of the canopy. What are they, 22 inches, something large? Yeah. And they look, they're, they're basically three-dimensional trees dripping blossoms. But <laughs> oh, well, it's I still, love that description. Yeah. But it's still trimmings. It is. It is. It's a three-tiered, I, I illustrate that in the book, it's a three-tiered, uh, like, like a wedding cake, mm. and then dropping from each tier are these wonderful... Almost like a topiary tree. So can you tell me a bit about how you entered into this particular field of study? Because 
studying trimmings seems like the sort of obsessive thing I would do, but nobody else would. <laughs> there are a few it's of us in this hole. world. Yes, it is. It is a rabbit hole. Um, there are a few of us, I think, who get slightly carried away. It's um, slightly not a, a, an actually straightforward story. I suppose I've, I've entered it in, in, a, in a rather convoluted way. I had two wonderful opportunities early in, in my career. One was to attend the Attingham Summer School, uh, which really transformed my what I wanted to do. And one was attending a postgraduate course on the fine and decorative arts, which no longer survives, unfortunately. And I became interested in textiles. And I thought, well, how can I create this. I didn't want to work in a museum and I just got married and I wasn't sure whether I was going to stay in London, you know, all that sort of uh, that, that sort of fact. And I could have gone into textile conservation, but I decided to do something that was, partic- was completely, I don't know where the idea came from, but I decided to, tr- to see if I could get a job, make it, well, I actually wanted to do upholstery, uh, actually making it, not training at night school, but actually in a, in, a, in a company. And I was very, very fortunate in finding a, 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 an entry into this. But I had to make curtains, which I thought were boring at first. But in fact, it turned out to be wonderful, working for the top decorators. Mm. And I got uh, really a wonderful insight into how things were made today. But at the same time, I was looking at uh, conservation workshops and realized that they were made in an entirely different way. And gradually, when I was doing research through documentation, it was beginning to make sense how they were made. And uh, it was a most wonderful entry. And then subsequently, I um, I went to the V&A and, and I got um, a, a couple of rather wonderful jobs at Ham House and Ostley, mm-hmm. two properties near London. And from there, I just began to, you know, uh, get involved with projects where conservation was, was impossible because the, the materials no longer survived and, and would replace, but based on documentary evidence, based on surviving examples and documentary evidence. And that's how I, I've done it. And gradually... That's how my career has developed. And it gave me entry into country house stores, and I saw old curtains or you know, bed mm. hangings or all sorts of things with their trimmings on, and realized that these trimmings were being, and fabrics were being uh, retired into store, and nobody would really see them again. And I thought that was such a great shame. And very, very slowly, I began to, I found myself interpreting accounts through their trimmings you get say 60 yards of damask being used for a curtain and you get 120 yards of silk lace well I knew how silk lace was used so by the quantity of lace which is a braid you could work out how it was applied and Mm. and that I began to find rather fascinating and so gradually my interest in trimmings was, was evolved it was created and I just thought I, I just felt this inner drive to record it because I realized that they were retired. And it, I was going to say, and you're recording it at a time it's, it's diminishing to such an extraordinary degree in terms of the people who make them. Exactly. The people are dying who make them. I mean, they, they're, 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 obviously they're dying, but, you know, the trade is dying. Mm. In France, it's still quite, um, quite lively. But, but in England, there are some very good firms that are still, still operating. But it's, it's, a, it's a dying trade. I mean, there's no demand for it anymore. But also, nowhere can they make the sorts of trimmings we're making in the late 17th century and indeed even the early 19th century. We cannot, we have lost those skills. And I felt it's important to record something that has been lost. It's a, it's, and that really, this book is a history of the trimmings that 
just to, just so that it was a, a wonderful period in our history when we were making these things before they were forgotten. Right. And we were talking uh, before the program started about how, in a strange way, it's a intensely scholarly and I'll use the word rabbit hole again because I love mm -hmm. it. It is a rabbit hole of a book, but you come away with this strangely practical knowledge of where to apply it, yeah. how it should be used, where it should be used, how extravagantly you can get away with using it. <laughs> Absolutely, and it varied over the period. And I think that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to, this isn't a catalogue of trimmings. This is actually, as you say, um, how they were used, the colours you would use with certain mm -hmm. fabrics, which what you'd use in certain rooms. And also, it was that you mentioned earlier the terminology. Uh, oh, it has it's like got, an incantation oh, going through the glossary and looking at all the terms. It's it's wonderful, and no trimming maker used the same term. They all use different terms, so you know there cannot be a set glossary. So I just used the words that I kept coming across. I have to say, one of my favourite was Friar's Knot. Uh, Friar's Knot was a, is a type of knot which um, was to, to to knot silk. So mm -hmm. you had strands of silk floss silk, and you knot them. And of course, it's the friar, only the friar, who would wear a belt right. with knots on it. And that's where the term comes from. It dies out in the 18th century and becomes sprigs, becomes faggots. Uh, you know, there's is that the same terms. one that becomes Turk's cap? <laughs> or is, or is that Turk's similar? cap is slightly different, but very similar. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what I like about it is, is even even a slight variation in it, almost invisible to mm -hmm. the naked eye, suddenly there's a new term yeah. for it. I mean, for marketing purposes I'm or sure whatever. I'm sure marketing, yes, yes. I mean, the one, if I may just say, a really good time of marketing was in the early 19th century mm. when you get references, so many references to Parisian fringe, to uh, Turkish fringe, to Persian fringe. But when you come to analyze it, you realize that they're actually all the same. I mean, made in a, there's a slightly mm. different style, but they are basically the same thing. And it was just their marketing terms. Well, there were terms that, that, you know, it was exotic. Anything to be exotic, you know, something to sell. Rebranded. Yes, to rebrand. Re it's, yeah. it's like sort of in the, in the middle of the 19th century when the French upholsterers were coming up with multiple terms for button-tufted chairs and all they had to do was move an arm and suddenly it was... The, the you know an armchair named after a battle of the Nile versus with the arm it was it was something else it was quite Absolutely. crazy I love it yeah, but I that's sort of the wonderful thing I was in in going through the the glossary of the book I know one of the the um the, the names things that make you wonder silk double looped diamond fringe oh, yes. I mean it just makes you it, it, what is that you know? Well, and I do provide a picture, so you'll know. You do. Yes, that's actually you do. But, I mean, to read about all of these things, campaign French, crimp, mm. drizzling. Drizzling is such a good word for oh. um, uh, ferret, friars, yes, galoon. Yes. I mean, there are these wonderful... Wonderful uh, words. Some are, some derive from the French, but not very as many as you think, but really good, strong Anglo-Saxon words. Right. Now, uh, was, did the French market, did the French uh, artisans in this field have an impact on the British artisans? Very much so. I mean, and not just the artisans, but the designs as well. The French very much were very strong in uh, influencing English design. It started earlier, but one thinks immediately of the second half of the 17th century when 
we have our restoration of the monarchy, you know, Charles II comes back, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, which meant that no longer could Protestant religion be practiced in France. And so you have a lot of Huguenots, mm. Protestants coming over, and they were craftsmen, and many of them were fringe makers and trimming makers. And they considerably provided the workforce for many of the textile trades and other trades, of course, as well. But th- there were a lot of trimming makers amongst them. And I think that this, 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 this skill that you see in quite a lot of the trimmings that survived from the late 17th century were certainly done by French people. And there's one, there's a wonderful, I do illustrate them in my book, Called a man, man called Pierre Dufresnoy, incredibly talented. I mean, it's just it's just a joy just to look at just a piece of trimming. Never mind mm. what it's trimming. So yeah, the French and How and throughout really history. Ateliers? I, let's say let's say at this time, is it one person making the fringe? Is it a man with five apprentices? Is it? A it larger de- operation? It depends on how successful you were. There could be a one-man operation, probably mm. employing his wife, you know, and his young children, young children, old men. You know, you don't need, if you only need a small loom to do a fringe, this is why it was so common amongst, you know, small houses. You mm. get, and a lot of it was piecework, so you'd get a central, um, you know, manager or director, and he would, he would uh, farm out um, the, the, the trimmings to be made. Mm. I mean, you've got to be, of course, very careful when you're farming out trimmings of silk or gold thread because mm. this meant money. So you'd have to be very secure in who you were saying. So I think there was not one large atelier. I think it was done in the home a lot. Mm. Or, um, uh, but, but it's impossible to know the records have gone. Okay. We don't know. But I have tried, where possible, in the first half of each chapter to record the history of the laceman and really his, his rise and decline. I mean, some of the early ones were very successful. They became um, this one man called William Elliot who's just called the gold man, gold, gold lace man. And we have a wonderful man called William Gosling who three times, well, maybe I'm, I can't remember, but anyway, he became Lord Mayor of London um, a, a couple of times. Oh, they came master of the guilds, the guild companies. Mm. So now they did very well. That they... They weren't a guild, but they were considered, it was considered an art yes. as opposed to a craft. craft. That's right. The trimmings maker never had a guild of their own, not like the, the mercers who were the fabric suppliers, the silk suppliers, or the weavers who were usually the wool that did become mm. silk, uh, or the drapers or the cloth workers. These are all high up in the, in the livery company. Um, in the echelon. There was the gold and silver wire drawers, of course. So really, they fell between two stools. And the early in the early guilds, when they were founded in the Middle Ages, when it was the women who were making these trimmings, they petitioned the government. They petitioned when they when all this foreign tra- foreign goods were coming in that were not very good quality. It was threatening their own industry. But they usually won their case, but they never were strong enough to form a guild. And they were often shunned by the other guild guild makers but they used because their they materials. were trying to become a guild well they would have loved to become a guild right. yeah absolutely but it never happened unlike in france and in italy there was never a guild so they never really had that power that guilds gave but they survived but it was a hard trade to be in hard trade hard trade making pretty things i hard mean that's trade. a very interesting sad. yes yes it is i mean it's almost you want it to be a miniseries you know <laughs> one of those british minis what limited one season you know yeah. um like harlots why didn't they have a moment in harlots where someone ended up working making trimmings, trimmings. yes yes <laughs> i know that the one thing that that feeds through your entire book is the rise and fall of trimmings based mm. on and the fashion. era mm. by the new money coming in, old money crashing. 
to the point of where in the early 20th century, when you have all modernism coming in, that must have been a frightening period for a, a, a lace maker, a, tra- a trimmings Absolutely. maker. Absolutely. It was a very frightening period. I think during the 18th century, the beginning of the 18th century, a lot of lace was used. But really, I mean, it, the money was in the material. So lace was, and when I say lace, I mean woven braid. I mean, I mean braid. But fringe used much more lace, mm-hmm. much more silk or tassel used much more silk than lace. But it was a very great period for using lace. And so basically it was a dip, it was a downturn. Mm. But it comes up again in the second half of the 18th century and these wonderful things were made. And it completely blows your mind in the early 19th century when they're, you know, silk, uh, and they were, they were covering wood wood uh, moulds. Right, and, to make those great drop fringes. Oh, make those drop. And it continued right through the 19th century. So the 19th century was very lucrative for the trimmings maker. And you will find in the in the uh, trade catalogues that there will be specific tradesmen who would make the wooden moulds for mm. tassels and for fringe. They actually called the fringe... Uh, the, and the, the moulds meaning the underbody, the, sort of the, the foundation wood, the to wood. wrap around the, yes, thre- the thread yes. around. Yes, they were always wood. And they were sometimes, you know, carved into spiral shapes. Right. Uh, and, but then the, and then the thread would follow the spiral shapes. And, and they would, that would be covered by women. The women were the ones that would cover the shapes of the moulds. They mm. were usually the ones to do that. Uh, but as you say, at the, in the 20th century, the demand really dropped. And, we, of course, we've got the two world wars we have to think about. But we have the Art Deco, you know, fashionable things coming in. And then we have Heels and, and, mm. and Conran and, you know, not really popular. But at the same time, keeping the tradesmen going was the, um, well, at the beginning of the 1900s, you have the foundation of the National Trust. Mm. You have the foundation of the Country Life and then the Georgian group later on beginning to be interested. And this, this, this growth of historicism and connoisseurship was really important. Companies like Lennigan and Morant, for example, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. important. And then just when you're dipping again, you got the, the tastemakers, the American women decorators right. who came to England, people like Nancy Lancaster in particular. I mean, she was very famous. And she brought colour back. And uh, she, she, her love of chintz, of course, mm-hmm. and with chintz came the trimmings. And then, you know, subsequently her relationship with, working relationship with John Fowler, who brought in balance and proportion and a touch of history as well. And so they continued the trimmings. But in a sense, we have been in a lull. So what one hopes is that, that it will begin to come up again for the sake of the trimmings maker. And, it, and right. I think it is, actually. I think it is coming. But it, it's slightly different today. They're using different materials and it's not quite the same. In looking at, say, a modern fringe, broadly speaking, versus, say, an 18th century fringe. What are the things that you see as a a scholar in terms of fineness of execution? Well, actually, there's no comparison. They, they, they often use the bullion, the quite thick mm-hmm. bullion fringe. They have hangers, but they're not as delicate. They're not as intricate. I mean, what the wonder of the um, early trimmings is when they have the uh, they have parchment, and, and later it was tin uh, covered with 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 um, silk. Well, you know, you're not going to get that today. You still have the springs, torsade in French, but springs which are wonderful, like a. a you know, well, they're springs, really, right. which are made of wire that are, are covered with silk. You still have those. But that can be made by a machine. Right. Uh, but the intricate, like you were saying, that the sort of blossom shapes, then there's no, there's no time, there's no, there's money is time now. I wouldn't make sure time is money, I should say. And they're not, not made today. So it's that delicacy. I mean, they are made, but it's not of the same intricacy. Now, now... Uh, 
students, of course, luckily because of the great preservation efforts in, in the UK and Ireland, we can go to these houses. We can mm. see. Not long ago, I was at Houghton Hall and saw that gigantic William Kent state bed that's so famous that Sybil Chumley had uh, restored, but with that gargantuan seashell headboard. Yes, yes. And that was, and the trimmings alone, I think oh. your book says, cost. Well, the bed, I think one account says the bed cost £200,000. And if that is the correct figure, um, uh, that means that the trimmings were more than half the cost. We The bill survives for that bed, but just for the trimmings and just for the trimmings. And so I we're talking about $130,000. Probably yes. Well, I just I that we can add, add it up, and for the trimmings alone, it and if you we wouldn't spend this on your bed today, let alone in 1732. And this is the 1732 money. It, I'm just rounding it up. One thousand two hundred and twenty pounds was just spent on the trimmings. Enormous sum of money. They were of course all gold thread, and now today, sadly, the gold has dropped off and it's left the underlying um, silver because it's. Gold thread is silver gilt thread, underlying layer of silver, which has tarnished, and so you get this grey look, and only in little tiny places where maybe it's just, you know, you see the, the, the gold. See but it was pure bling. I mean, that bed was one of the most important beds because we know who made it. But also, if you look, the, the cornice of the bed, the top of the bed, mm. is created like an architectural entablature. And if you look at the actual cornice in the room, the entablature in the room, and above the doors, you'll see that the bed... The trimmings on the bed echo the carved, gilded, carved... And they line up. And they line up. With the actual cornice. I yes. mean, it's quite it's amazing. It's divine. It's wonderful. And I think one of the things that's it's interesting about what you're talking about, because I know you've gone over to see the British galleries, which are in development at the Met, there's mm. that famous bed that oh, I know people good. will see. So when they read your book, which has a photograph mm. of that great 18th century bed... It, they can it see has, it in real yeah. life. Yes, I covered mean, I, in tassels. Oh, it's covered with little trimmings, which were made. It was a fringe, but they were made as tied tassels. They were made of little. They're called tufted tassels, and I, I, I include, as you say, an image of the of the fringe. I also include the two as a sort of comparison, really. Um, the Melville bed at the V&A, mm. the great crimson velvet bed, which is an extraordinary condition. I mean, it, it's, it's on par in a sense with the green velvet bed you just mentioned mm. at Houghton Hall, because in its the fact that it's so um, it's such good condition, uh, but that is full of these wonderful different lengths. I think about eight different lengths of of fringe with these little tied tassels on the end. I'd like to um, thank you very much for for being here, Annabelle Westman, to talk about fringe and tassels and passementerie and all the things that make life delightful. I think I'd like to end with one moment with a wonderful story that I heard about Carlos de Bestigi, the great 20th century tastemaker who was a great snob, um, and was a, a woman, friend of his, was showing him through her newly decorated, expensively decorated house, and she walks him through room after room after room, and he says nothing, and doesn't bat an eye. And then finally, at the end of the tour, he reaches out to a curtain and takes the trim in hand and says, ravissant. <laughs> I think you've taught us all how ravissant trimmings can be and should be, and I hope we get back to using them. Well, thank you very much. It's really, really fun to do. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Annabelle. The ADS-Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wartzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. 
To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.